On this episode of Wild in the Streets, Joe D'Alessandro breaks out of prison and manipulates and terrorizes the occupants of a remote home in 1980s madness. Comenciano. Welcome to Wild in the Streets, a deep dive into the Eurocrime films of the 70s and beyond. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as always is the hustler, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? You know, I'm pretty good, Doug. Nope, you are not. You are yeah, not I'm doing sick. well. I'm just trying to stay positive. I feel like people are probably sick. Not sick. People are probably tired of hearing about how sick I am. The same way that I'm tired of being sick. So I was gonna, I was gonna maintain kayfabe and pretend like everything was chill, and I was actually a happy co-host. And in reality, I'm like sipping my breathe easy tea and hoping for the best. Yeah, I mean, look. The fact is that people have been listening to recent episodes. They know that you have been nonstop sick for basically a month straight, if not a little bit longer. Um, it has been it caused chaos in everything in your life. Uh, I mean, basically, your life is the thing we should probably focus on. But really, my life as well is just chaotic. Sure, yeah, the important um, things. The important things, one hundred percent. But I mean, we're worried about you, Liam. Which is why I had to sit you down and say, Liam, it's time for us to rec- record another episode of Wild in the Streets. And you were like. Uh, if I got to, and I'm like, yes, you do. I mean, I did make the time to watch this movie. And, like two weeks ago, and, like and, I did? <laughs> yeah, and of, of the many movies we've covered, this is one that without the podcast, I don't think it was worth uh, uh, my effort. So I, I really I want like to... jumping ahead a little here. <laughs> I know, I know. But it was very important to me to get this episode done, so I felt like you know we, we, uh, we, we, did, our, we did our due diligence. I, I'm dealing with this again this week- weekend. I'm going to be recording another podcast, and it's one that's been put off for like a month. And so a month ago, I watched the movie for it, and now I got to record on it. And I, you know, for this particular movie that I'm talking about here is fucking it's Sam Raimi's Spider Man. So it's not like I have to recall too much about it. I, I've watched it many times before, but like that's tough. You get in your brain, you're like, maybe I should rewatch it. But for something like this, this particular movie. <laughs> I was skimming through it today. I'm like, oh, I got it. I think I understand what this is all about. We uh, we uh, recently recorded for Horror Business, and it was movies that we had watched for October. But mm-hmm. again, like it was like our spooky season spectacular. In fact, of the three episodes that we had planned for spooky season, we were trying to do four, actually. Um, this was the first one that actually had Halloween movies in it. And so I was really excited at the time. But then <laughs> I got sick, and then Justin got COVID, and then Justin went on a vacation. So we just never recorded. So then when it came time to record, I thought, I guess I better rewatch these movies. But here's a big difference, Doug. These movies were a joy to watch. Right. So rewatching them, I got really excited, and I actually enjoyed them even more on rewatch because I was able to pay more attention to uh, – uh, the cinematography and the editing and stuff. I wasn't just wrapped up in like what was happening. I was able to spend a little more attention than I did the first time on craft, and I really appreciated that that opportunity for a second watch. Well, maybe you could have gotten the same level of appreciation for 1980s madness. Yeah. One step beyond. How about that? Okay. Liam, Joe D'Alessandro is a star of Madness. Uh, his voice is not the star of it, by the way. And as far as I can tell from the research I did about this film, this movie was never dubbed into English. There is no English version of it. So if you're looking for the dulcet tones of Joe D'Alessandro's voice, you do not get them in this, uh, in this movie. Uh, before we get into talking about the movie proper, do you have any experience with Warhol superstar Joe D'Alessandro? Well, I, you know, I'm one of these people that I, I get that this is the marketing. I always feel I don't. Maybe you don't feel this way, but mm-hmm. when discussing, uh, discussing, discussing flesh for You're Frankenstein, sick. yeah, I know. <laughs> when discussing flesh for Frankenstein and blood for Dracula, which other than Crybaby are the movies I most know him for. Sure, I always feel weird calling them Andy Warhol movies, even though they were marketed that way. Yeah, they're not Andy Warhol movies, right? Like, like right. they are and they aren't at the same time. And I, it bothers me only because, though I know me and you know. Some people think Andy Warhol directed those movies, and he yes. didn't. And I think it's it, and and from what I understand, even his production uh, participation was not of a 
huge enough measure that he should get all the credit the way that he does. Yeah, I think so, Paul Morrissey said that he's he was basically entirely hands off on those. Yeah. Movies. So, uh, but I, you know, I came to them later in life, but sure. I have seen Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula. In fact, I saw Flesh for Frankenstein in 3D. Uh, thanks to Exhumed Films. Uh, Blood for Dracula, I just saw normal, though. Uh, and then, of course, I've seen <laughs> Crybaby, which is, for me, a, a, a classic of uh, basic cable. You know, it was on all the time. Um, but uh, but that's it. In fact, um, you have on this list here, you know, we have notes, everybody, the Limey. I had no idea he was in the Limey. I couldn't I had also you. forgotten that he was in the Limey. <laughs> I mean, I haven't watched the Limey in so long that if you told me what character, I wouldn't. It wouldn't click anymore because sure. it's been a long time. But I have seen it a couple of times in college. That was, I think it was in college, right? Yeah, I think that came out when I was in college. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I think so. That was just one of those movies that I that friends really loved. So I, right, I, I've right. watched it a couple of times. Uh, and then, oh, he's also, he's on the show Miami Vice or he's in the movie Miami He, he, he guest starred on the TV show Miami oh, Vice. Okay. Well, I, I just thought it was a fun thing to include on the yeah, list. Yeah, that's pretty great, we, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, okay. You've seen him in. I mean, that's a good grouping of stuff. Sure. Yeah. The yeah, funny yeah. thing is about that, like his appearance in Crybaby. He's in that movie because he's Joe D'Alessandro, right? One hundred percent. And he's in those Andy Warhol, the Andy Warhol titled movies that that we know better as Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula, because he's part of that Andy Warhol right. group. I've seen Trash, the Andy Warhol movie, uh, and he's really good in that as well. Um, as like a total junkie in it, and probably you know somewhat based on his actual self. What do you think of him as a performer? Um, you know, I love Flush for Frankenstein. Um, I it's been it's been a while since I've watched Blood for Dracula. I remember thinking it was good, but he plays he, like a communist character. I think. In it. Yeah, he just I, I he didn't he doesn't strike me as much as he does in Flush for Frankenstein. Sure. Um, and I barely remember him in Crybaby. Like I know he's in it. But I don't really think about it. Like if if I had to remember exactly what he did, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I think so. Um, but I'll say like, uh, though I understand it's not his voice, so that affects it. Um, doesn't bring a lot to this movie, honestly. <laughs> uh, and it and 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 it was one of those situations. Quite honestly, as I was watching it, I just kept thinking. Why does this fucko look so familiar? What what is going on? And it, I finally had to look it up and be like, "Oh, it's that guy." And then, honestly, it affected my feeling on the movie, which uh though we are kind of joking around about it cuz um I don't think either one of us, you know, we'll get into why later. Um it actually made me like the movie a little less. Interesting. That's interesting. Only because um Again, I don't have huge memories of him necessarily as a performer, but he, it's generally positive, right? Like I, I, I you know, I, I couldn't um, describe all the stuff he does in Blood for Dracula, but I think he's pretty good. Uh, I, you know, I like him in Flesh for Frankenstein. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have any. In other words, I, I would expect him to bring something to this, you know, maybe. And I was a little like frustrated that any, like any man. Any Italian, uh, well, considering it's dubbed, any man (laughs) who can walk around could play this role because he just doesn't get to do a lot. Like, I guess there's some, you'd have to be, there's some, like, fake fighting, you know, I guess. Sure. But but he's just, uh, for a movie that I think is meant to have, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But suffice (laughs) suffice it to say... Um, I, I think I appreciate him enough as a performer that when I realized it was him, I kind of thought, ah, that's a bummer. I don't think this movie is doing much with him. When I think of Joe D'Alessandro, I don't think of him as a good actor. Like, that's not what he brings to the table. He was a very striking man. And he has a yes. certain weird charisma to, to him that isn't on he's, display he, He's memorable. You, yeah. what, like, I don't know that he, like, that's what I'm trying to say about these other movies. Like, Maybe I can't. Maybe I wouldn't say like he makes the movie, but I I feel like he brings something to those roles, even if I haven't seen them. Like even with Crybaby, right? I haven't watched Crybaby in like I don't know eighteen years. You know what I mean? Like it's been a long time since I was like, let's put Crybaby on. But when I saw it listed, I thought, oh yeah, of course, yeah, he's in that. You know what I mean? Like I could I could picture. I just think he stands out in a way that in this 
he does not stand out. I mean, physically he does if you think he's hot, like which I guess some people did. Sure. And, you know, yeah, it's still him. But I, that charisma isn't there. And maybe that's just because it's not him talking. But I, I, don't, I don't think it can just be – I don't think it's just the dubbing that sort of almost excises him from the movie. I will say that one of the things that I most connect with in regards to Joe D'Alessandro is his – voice and his accent in particular yeah, yeah so to have that missing makes it i could see why you wouldn't necessarily have recognized hey what's this guy supposed to be what's he, like the movie does fixate on him but it's hard to know why unless you already know who he is in terms of the experience of making this movie this comes from uh, roberto curdy's uh italian crime filmography book which we use kind of as a bible for this show uh now this was a, definitely a work for hire job by fernando de leo the director who we, we've already seen some of his films and he's known as like one of the central Euro crime, you know, directors of that time period, made a lot of classics. Uh, this was a movie that was made very quickly. I think 14 days shot in. He talked about working with Joe D'Alessandro. He said he was already cast in the lead, but I agreed because he was right for the part. He was an addict so much so that you couldn't but feel sympathy for him. In the morning, as soon as he got on set, he drank three to five shots of cognac, then disappeared until I called him for his scenes and came back full of dope like a crazy horse. However, he didn't miss a line, and at the end of the day, he ran away again like a crazy horse to take some more drugs. Such a character, sweet, hearty, absolutely out, was beloved by everyone, including myself. What I remember most about Madness is Joe running towards me. What <laughs> a strange way to end that quote about it. So in terms of... This was sort of a lost period for Joe D'Alessandro. He, you know, he'd made those Warhol movies. Then he went to Europe, made a few Eurocrime movies. I think uh, there's there's another one um, that is certainly more well-regarded than this particular film. Uh, but he seemed like he was kind of out of it on the set of this. And maybe that comes through a little bit on his performance as well. What do you think? I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you Does this film feel like something that was made in a rush? Um, well, yes, I, but I don't. That that feeling, right, doesn't necessarily mean what it does for DeLeo here. He talks about he just doesn't care about this movie, right? This yeah, is he something give a shit. Yeah. he does, and he doesn't think he did it wrong. Like he made big mistakes, but you can tell he doesn't care, and that he is sort of haphazardly making this movie in a very short period of time with a very limited amount of money. Well. Lots of passion projects are made in a short, limited time with a with a limited amount of money. You know what I mean? True. So absolutely. In so, this case, you know, he even says he knew he was making a bad movie. He, he, you know, it's basically. He said they were just bargains. The producer came and said, "I need a film. You have to do it in ten days. It must cost this much." And so he just did it. So it seemed like not much passion there. Not definitely not a passion project. Yeah, but I I don't know that I would have. I could have guessed that because it doesn't feel like there's a lot. In this movie, you'd think a movie – in there's a lot of material in the film, and we'll get to more uh, detail this later, <laughs> that could involve a lot of emotions and passion. And it all of it feels a little detached. Yeah. And so that could come from a director just really being like, whatever, this is fine. Let's just get it done. It could also just come from someone who had never made a movie before. Maybe this is the first time work of a guy who you know, has some uh, depraved interests – but doesn't know how to translate those onto the screen. So I just wasn't sure how to interpret what I was seeing, which was sure. like, it is clear that the depth of the what's going on on screen or in the narrative doesn't necessarily come across in the movie. It also, this is a movie that came after a lot of movies of this ilk. I mean, you can certainly see echoes of things like Straw Dogs and Last House on the Left and all the Last House on the Left you know, home invasion type movies that came in that wake in the 1970s. And this is a very kind of pared down version of it with just like four characters, basically a, a play with the one location and four characters throughout it and all the uh, the machinations and drama between them. Uh, let's stop tiptoeing around it. Let's take a break. When we return, 1980s madness. <laughs> Thank you. 
escaped convict plays the occupants of a remote home against one another for his own sadistic pleasure while searching for the loot he buried there following a previous robbery. It's 1980's Madness, uh, a.k.a. the Kenze Per Un Massacaro, literally Vacation Massacre, that's its Italian title, and probably a little bit more of an appropriate one, to be totally honest. Directed, as I mentioned, by Fernando Del Leo, uh, one of the most famous of all Eurocrime directors, uh, also well-known as a spaghetti western director, directed Caliber 9. Uh, in fact, if you've seen Caliber 9, you probably recognize a lot of the soundtrack to this film. Directed The Italian Connection, Shoot First, Die Later, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, a lot of films that we are probably going to be covering in upcoming episodes. Uh, and again, as we mentioned in the book by Roberta Curdy, uh, Fernando De Leo basically says this was a work-for-hire job uh, and, and written by Mario Gariazzo and Fernando De Leo himself. Cast Joe D'Alessandro as Joe Brezzi. Basically, uh, he is a escaped convict. We see him escape by <laughs> climbing down a rope, escape from jail at the beginning. And the entire movie is him at first, outside of this kind of cabin, this kind of fairly isolated uh, location where he has uh, st uh, he has stored some stolen money. He wants to get at it, but it has been renovated. And now there are three people in that place. That's Paola, Liliana, and Sergio. Uh, Sergio and Liliana are a couple. Paola is Liliana's younger sister, but she's also sleeping with Sergio. Uh, and there's a lot of drama in regards to that. Joe, at first, like in the first 20 minutes or so, he basically is just watching them from afar. He realizes all their secrets and, of course, will eventually use them against them. Uh, shot in 12 days. This was a very rushed production. It feels like a very kind of compressed uh, thing. The only other thing I want to mention is, for some reason, in the location that we spend the entire movie, there's this giant image of John Travolta on the wall for like the entire movie. Very distracting. Very strange. I wonder what we're supposed to interpret the meaning of that. Apparently, there's also uh, there's an image of Marlon Brando that you see as well from Last Tango in Paris. Maybe it's trying to say something. Maybe you have a theory, Liam, about what it's trying to say. But before you get into that, what did you think of 1980s madness? Well, you know, Doug... Um... You watched this before me, and I remember you said, you know, ooh, this is one of those, this is one of those rougher Eurocrime movies. This is, this sure. is something we were nervous about, and and I bring it up because this has been a theme on the show is sort of thinking about, you know, to what level these movies make us uncomfortable. Because I think we jumped into this project with the idea that we might be covering a ton of movies that otherwise we like but have elements in them that we don't and that we'd have to navigate how to talk about those movies. Admittedly, those elements that I was thinking of were mostly fascist elements. Sure, sure, sure. But right. that there might be other stuff too, including sure. uh, a big theme, not just in, in, in Eurocrime films uh, or specifically Poliziotechi films, but in um, a lot of uh, films of the time from Europe is, uh, you know, violence and, and rape that, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and not just the kind that we see in this movie, but even characters you're supposed to like can do awful things in these movies. And yeah, and uh, we're just supposed to accept that that's part of who they are. So uh, I went into it sort of prepped for that. And, um, you know, the thing about it that was actually a big relief for me, Doug, is uh, realizing that uh, you just picked the wrong movie because this isn't a Eurocrime movie in any way, shape, or form. This does not fit <laughs> the mold. This is just some sort of uh, cheap take on a depraved uh, grindhouse American film. And, uh, you know, it's, it's trying to do the sexy, violence, tension thing. Uh, you referenced Straw Dogs. This movie couldn't even lick the toes of no. Straw Dogs. No, absolutely uh, not. And, and, you know, and it's probably not even ripping off Straw Dogs. It's probably ripping off some other movie that's ripping off Straw Dogs, you know? So uh, it, it is so far outside of everything else we've done that rather than just accept that it fits the category and it makes sense that we're talking about it, I've decided it just doesn't even fit the show. So we can just end right here. So we're done. <laughs> and we don't have to talk I, about it. I mean, that is an interesting I mean, question, I, right? I'm being, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious uh, because we need to talk about it regardless. But sure. I really do think this is the movie you include in your book for either because you think that it has to be covered for whatever other reasons or because you just need more examples of the genre. This is far... Th this would be like if you were writing a book specifically about slasher films, right? right? And you included... Uh, what's a good example that people say is a slasher is not a slasher? Oh, no, a better thing. You're writing a giallo book 
and you include Suspiria because you're like, well, it's kind of a GL, but it's kind of right, not. Right, right, right. It's like, yeah, but A, you didn't have to include it, and B, it doesn't really fit what you're talking about. Sure. That's that's how I feel about this. Like, it's it's technically a Eurocrime movie. It happens in Europe, and there's crime in it. But when it comes to a lot of the themes of Polizia Tecci movies, I just don't think they're here in a strong enough way to be like, you got to put madness in your book. It really fits. It's like, it's far enough outside that it feels like an anomaly. Um but I will say, that being said, I've watched enough, like, Violent Weekend or, sure. uh, uh, you know, enough movies that I think have similar DNA to this that watching it didn't actually bum me out maybe as hard as I thought. Because for me, the, the two elements that we sort of said are the ones that I'm the most worried about in this project. One, movies that, though compelling and fun and artistic and all these other things, are really just like fascist screeds, you know? Sure, Which sure, is sure. totally a possibility, and, and, and we've only gotten a little flavor of it so far, but it's bound to come up. Or movies where the hero is an abuser and a rapist, which is like also probably going to happen pretty damn soon, too. Uh, so... That's what I was going in thinking about. And instead, this is sort of like uh, your run-of-the-mill, I guess he's kind of an anti-hero because the other characters are themselves so gross that you end up sort of having some sympathy for this guy. But not really. What he does is supposed to be bad. And yeah. he's and in not... fact, there's no there's no question about his badness because the first right. thing we see him do after he escapes from prison is just murder two people for no reason for whatsoever. For no reason. And so, I because it's clear the kind of person he is, and then what kind of movie this is, which is like, uh, I mean, in unlike a lot of the other movies we've seen too, this would be a good argument for uh, if you wanted to talk about a political euro crime. This might be a mark in that direction because there is no perspective here. I mean, I guess other than the idea that like uh, bourgeois people tend to be immoral, I guess might be a, po- a political standpoint. But for the most part, there's no social commentary here. There's nothing like about the world as it is. The, it, in a sense, this kind of functions like a short story that someone wrote that they thought maybe had a little bit more um, morality to it than than it does. Uh, and 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 you know. And considering how gross it is, if if I would, if we just describe what happens in it, it, it it's actually a lot less gross to watch than it is to hear in that like it doesn't really do as much awful stuff as it could. Uh, right. And in fact, when you know, uh, I don't know. Anyways, I don't want to ramble on and on. I want to give you a chance to talk. But for me, I didn't like this movie. I found it um, – surprisingly boring for the for the mm-hmm. explicit mm-hmm. nature of what it is but i also wasn't scandalized by it partly because there's also nothing here to draw me in and my biggest fear is falling in love with one of these movies but also <laughs> finding it morally repugnant <laughs> which does happen sometimes totally. i mean it's a very sleazy movie right and that's it it's a sleaze movie it's it's there's a but it is the lot. most toothless you know what yeah this this, the, this comparison is going to work for some people, but I think you'll understand what I mean. This movie is sleazy the way those um, in the 90s comic book companies used to put out swimsuit issues. Do yes, you remember that? Yes, I know exactly what you're talking and about. And on one hand, it's toothless, right? There's no actual nudity. On the other hand, uh, supplying 15-year-olds with cartoon <laughs> fake women uh, so that they can jerk off to their cartoon. That... Well, it had no negative effects on that generation. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Like it's this is how this is. Technically, this is sleazy. There is certainly a good amount of nudity in it, unlike those comics. But it's missing some of the like. This isn't a roughy, right? This isn't like right, right, right. The 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 depths that this shit can go to is actually way further than this. I mean, you don't even get to see Joe D'Alessandro's dick in this. Right, right. It's really holding back. You mentioned before, like that that the comparison to Straw Dogs doesn't reflect well on madness. Yes. Uh, the other movie that I've heard in several reviews referred to in regards to this is Pasolini's uh, Theorem, aka uh, Teorema, with um, with Terrence Stamp, sure. which which reflects even less well in regards to it. But just the idea that you have this kind of upper class, you know, b- these bourgeois people, and then you throw this wrench into it, right? This completely unpredictable thing, and it just completely brings their entire lives crashing down around them. But this is such a obviously influenced as you already said by by the horror movies at that time and probably two generations removed from them to a certain extent like a last house on dead end street type thing i mean it very much is a movie that just wallows in you're right low 
exploitation sleaze, lots of nudity, lots of sexuality, and also has the thing that I think we both hate the most, though thankfully it doesn't have a um, likable character doing it, but it's a character being raped and then afterwards liking it and being like very positive about it, which is just one of those things that you see a lot in 1970s, particularly um, European movies. Um any thoughts on that, Liam? Well, I will say I I agree with you, Doug. I th- this is the one place I will give the movie a little bit of credit. I don't believe her. I think she's saying that because w- the subtext of the movie is that she is so mad at her lover the whole movie. So uh, I think we said it, but just to make it clear, sure, the, the people who own this house where uh, uh, Joe Delisandro's character has hidden his money is a couple. And then uh, the woman's sister. And of right. course, the husband is secretly having sex with the sister. And the sister just wants to fuck the whole time. In fact, I'll, she'll the, fuck anything the or biggest, anyone who's around. The biggest crime that this movie has is actually the sister as a character. Because A, she's nude constantly for no reason. It's just yep. is unjustifiable. Uh, and often shot in a way where it's not even that flattering the nudity. Like, you, you could say, oh, the camera's leering at her. But I would argue the camera should be leering at her, but it's just a little uninterested in everything that's happening to actually do that. She's so just wearing like, a sheet most of the time. She's barely is covered even yeah. when she's wearing clothes. So she's just naked and it's not hot. And then um, <laughs> she's willing to do whatever it takes to fuck with this this man that I don't know if she hates or she loves. And honestly, the, the amount to which she's talking about how awesome it is that this guy raped her, um, I suspect is actually supposed, though still disgusting, is about her fucking with the guy. That she's actually yeah. trying to mess with this dude. Which is, again, gross as hell. But let's be clear. There are lots of movies where it gets even grosser than that. So if you're a first-time listener and you don't know the depth of disrespect that women have gotten in some of these movies, uh, I am not defending this plot point. I'm simply saying we've seen worse. And so, um, you know, I, I as much as I don't like it and, – and I will say this is the thing, right? Is this movie not supposed to be for the sort of um, – sweaty trench coat jerk off who wants to see a woman talk about how much she liked rape. Like right. the, the problem, part of the problem for me with this movie is not just that it's not good and boring. I don't think it even accomplishes the level of depravity that the audience for this kind of, cause again, this is 1980 Doug by 1980. There's some pretty gross shit floating around in, in times square, right? Like the 42nd street, you're going to see some, some real awful stuff. It's the year of maniac, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and like this movie is, is compared to some of its contemporaries, let alone the movies that would come after it kind of tame while still it, it manages to have repugnant things in it. But to make those repugnant things slightly less repugnant, and I'm kind of like, why did you bother? Well, we know why he bothered making it slightly less repugnant because he didn't give a fuck. The director just wanted to get done with this project. Well, they must have thought the same thing you thought, though that that audiences in the West would not have have appreciated anything about it because it never got dubbed, so no one ever saw it in the West. Right? Yeah, that's I mean, this- that's fair. I, I mean, I think that uh, I hate to say it, but if this was slightly grosser and was made with even a slight bit of emotion in it, because it just really has no emotional core at all. Um, I think there would be a bunch of people who like gross stuff that would love this movie. And that's... I I don't want to sound so judgmental, because, you know, uh, movies are fake. And so uh, if you like fake gross stuff, I don't like it, but whatever. I guess that's better than liking real gross stuff, right? Uh, But, you know, I'm not trying to shame anyone who loves that that kind of thing, per se, but I, I do think, like, it was, is confusing watching this movie because I can't imagine who would watch this movie and be like, this is exactly what I wanted. I wanted a, I wanted a not tense home thriller with no actual stakes where there's sexual violence but filmed in a way that feels really uncommitted in either direction. It's oh, like, even, and even on top of that, let's make sure that it's only 75 minutes long. Yeah, it's just – I can't imagine a project that involves less – again, I kind of was willing to think like maybe this was made by somebody because of of course, I didn't read who the director was. Sure. I was like, uh, maybe this is made by someone who just doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. But, you know, of course, knowing who the director is, he just doesn't care. And that yeah. not caring comes across really strong in this movie. 
I mean, I think Fernando de Leo's presence in the making of this is the only reason that it's connected to the Eurocrime genre. Sure, all, fair. Right. Yeah. And maybe the fact that it uses music from a previous Fernando de Leo uh, movie uh, centrally and Joe D'Alessandro, the fact that he had been in some of those movies. So it's like it has the DNA of it, but then it doesn't all come together. I do want to be a little bit more positive than you are sure. in regards okay, to the movie. I'm just going to say, I do think that Lorraine DeSalle as Paola, the sex pot sister character, she is wild in this movie. Like she is, she she's okay, alive in a way no, that none fair. of the other that's characters fair. are. Cause it's, it's a very like Sergio is, is nothing right. He goes, he's a really strange character anyway, because like the, he's wants to go out hunting. That like, that's his whole thing. He wants to go out hunting. He gets up early Paola is just like throwing herself at him and be like, stay home, stay home. And then Liliana, his wife, is going out that day. So he could stay home and just have sex with the sister all day long if he wanted. But he really wants to go out hunting. And that's his because the movie wants him to go hunting. That's where he goes. Liliana goes out shopping. And that's where Joe D'Alessandro's character, you know, he breaks in. First, he's trying to uh, use like a pickaxe in the fireplace to try to dig up the money. Then Paola, he makes her do it. And then it leads to the sexual assault. Eventually, Liliana and Sergio come back and then it, they're all getting involved. It gets revealed very quickly about the affair. And then all these machinations happen. The other thing that we haven't really gotten into is the idea that there's no real sympathetic character here. Liliana is None. the closest to a sympathetic character because she's the only one who hasn't wronged anybody, but she's such a blank, emotionless slate that it's hard to give a fuck about her whatsoever, uh, even though she's kind of key to the end of the movie, where I think we're supposed... Anyway, we'll get to the ending in just a second, but I do have two questions for you. Very important questions, Liam. First question is, they say while he's watching them that they don't live in this house. It's just a fucking shack. They just go there for the weekend sometimes. Why didn't he just wait for them to leave and then just get the money? So I think he has a sense that he's too close to where the prison is. And so there's a general sense of time. Like time a, is a fact. Yeah, there's a, there's a closing net around him. Two, he slept outside. Like when he wakes up outside the next day, I think that's the moment where he's like, why the fuck am I out? I, I'm a hard man. Why am I out here sleeping like a like So a I agree with you 100%. So that it leads to my second question. Why doesn't he just kill them? He killed those two people at the beginning, didn't even hesitate. He fucking stabbed the guy with a pitchfork. Why didn't he just kill him? I think that, uh, well, A, he doesn't because then there wouldn't be a movie. But, <laughs> but B, I think, it's, I think the idea is supposed to be when he realizes that he can get them to do the work for him. Because... When he starts, you'll notice he starts trying to dig it up. He doesn't realize how deep it is. Yeah, it seems he's like, like yeah, he doesn't know. He's what like, kind all right, let's go there. And after a while, he's like, "What the fuck is going on here?" <laughs> like he's like really bummed on it, you know. So, um, I think that's part of it. But yeah, I mean, obviously, it's just because there wouldn't be a, a goddamn movie. Um, yeah, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's. I do want to acknowledge there's a kernel of a thought here, right? He is an escaped criminal, right? And he does talk to an old man who kind of suggests that, like. There's some rich people who have vacation homes around here. So, like, the movie almost could go into a, like, they're rich and they're being invaded by the poor. It's a class movie. And the, the movie is so fucking uninterested in that. It just yeah. doesn't even want to. And it's... It was it was really weird to me because I really thought like oh, that would add a little something to this, but no, it just doesn't. It never it never really comes up. <laughs> Joe D'Alessandro finds out about who's staying in that house because he pretends to be what an insurance salesman. He's literally in a sweaty <laughs> tank top, and he's like, "I sell insurance," and the guy's like, "Yeah, it makes sense to me." Also, I love the idea that like all over Italy, there's just old men on the side of the highway with a dog. With nothing to do, like he couldn't find a bench to sit on. Like, like, <laughs> why is this where he's hanging out? It's 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 so funny because you you can really summarize the plot of this movie so quickly. We basically said everything that happens in it already. You know, he spends twenty minutes watching their machinations and the drama between these these three people. Two of them go off. He goes in, right? He tries to break in. He makes her do a bunch of work, sexually assaults her. The other couple come home. You know, there's lots of threats and things like that. And there's a few scuffles. And then it kind of, he develops, I don't know if it's meant to be a moral center, where he recognizes that Liliana, the wife of Sergio, that she's been wronged. 
and she doesn't accept it at first. So what he does is he makes Sergio and Paola, the sister, have sex in front of her, basically to show that this is real. And he seems like bummed about it a little bit. And the movie ends, not to give too much away, but this is the ending, with him basically, well, what happens is Paola and Sergio try to attack him and he kills both of them. Big deal. And then he's going to take Liliana. And what's his plan with her? He's going to take her in the money and live happily ever after. What do you think his plan is there? I yeah, I think I think or at least you know in you know uh, uh, sexually assault her, something like that. I don't know. I don't think he's thought it through. I think uh, he does he, seem to like legitimately like her. Yeah. Somehow, even though she has no personality whatsoever. I don't know. There's something there, though, right? Or at least there's something the movie is kind of of <laughs> trying to circle around the idea that her innocence is something that he is really drawn to. And then what happens, Liam, at the end? Uh, she shoots him? She shoots him, yes. She has yeah. a shotgun yeah. that he passes her, and she just fucking shoots him. Yeah. Uh, and and <laughs> by the way, if they had done any of the work to maintain the brief, the brief whiff of class... That they had at the beginning, right? If they had main, maintained that as a thread throughout the movie, the ending would make sense. Because the idea is, despite all the violence and the betrayal and the whatever, you don't belong here, man. Uh, and so, of course, she's going to turn on you. And then, while that wouldn't make the movie necessarily a good movie, it would at least makes sense. But as it stands, you know, she shoots him, I guess, because he's a scary man. But, like, also... I don't well, know. He's, he's a dangerous psychopath who just killed her sister and husband. Even if she hates her sister and husband at that point, he still just murdered them in front of her. <laughs> the movie has no weight to her, though. And, yeah, I know. And she could have stepped in at any moment. Like, it's like the, she suddenly develops a character at that moment. Because that's the. I mean, this is where the movie really is the most misogynistic. It's not necessarily just in the use of sexual assault as like a pointless plot point, but really both in the characterization of the two, of both the, the two sisters, right? Because basically it's like the two women in the film are either so mild and boring they barely exist, right. or this like uh, uh, sextress a uh, manipulator who's ready to fuck anybody and doing the and like doesn't care one whit about her sister. And in fact, when he reveals their betrayal, she doesn't really care. Nope. You know what I mean? Like, well, I mean, she, we even saw earlier than that. I mean, she basically is like she'll she she's she's threatening Sergio constantly. It's like if you don't fuck me now, I'm gonna give it up. I'm gonna tell her what's going on. Like she doesn't care about getting caught. It seems like she's actually kind of pushing for her to get caught. The whole thing is. Um, it could not be less interested in uh, treating these women as actual people. And that's really, and I, I know that's maybe a bit detached as a point of offense, but for me, that's the most offensive part is that like, and I don't know if that's DeLeo just doesn't give a fuck because he doesn't care about the movie or if it's in the script. I suspect it's in the script that the whole point of the story is that, uh, that, there's really only one character in the movie and therefore though he is a monster we're supposed to have some amount of sympathy for him and that's Delisandro's character but like we don't have any sympathy for him at all because do you think do you think by the end we're supposed to want him to get away no i think i think it's meant to be the vibe i get and you you know who knows at this point cuz sure. i'm yeah, not sure yeah. anyone cares but uh the vibe i get is that it's supposed to be just we're supposed to feel good that she shoots him because it is a reorientation back to real life. That everything about this scenario, from the moment he shows up until the moment she shoots him, is kind of like a weird, surreal nightmare. You know what I mean? That like all the laws that govern everyday life have been suspended. And that is not just him invading their lives. It's the sudden revelation that her trusted sister it doesn't care about her and that yeah. her husband doesn't seem to care either side note her their husband doesn't care about either one of them nope at all and he like he likes hunting that's all he cares well, about. well and he's a terrible hunter i mean that's the other thing <laughs> and th this is one of the funny things about the movie i can't tell if it's telling you he's a terrible hunter or if the makers of the movie are like i don't know what you do to hunt birds but yeah it's like what is hunting with again <laughs> well it's he's dressed up to be a little more clear, I think it's supposed to be suggested he's 
quail hunting. Right? Yes, absolutely. But you quail hunt by scaring quails into the air and then shooting yeah. at them. So he doesn't a have a involved. he doesn't have a fucking dog. He doesn't have a noisemaker of any kind. He's just walking around looking at trees. And then I'm thinking, what birds are in the trees that you would be allowed to shoot? Like people don't hunt songbirds right like so what bird is he hunting if it's not a pheasant or a quail then what the fuck is he even doing because guys he's looking at the sky again i guess it could be ducks or geese maybe but like i don't know the whole time it feels like not just that uh he isn't good at this but that the people who made the movie are like i don't know what you do man just walk around with the gun for a while it's it's fine Liam, I'm starting to think that you would not recommend 1980s Madness to uh, anyone who's interested in Eurocrime films. I think that um, I wouldn't to anyone who's interested in Eurocrime films. I think that uh, listeners for whom a certain level of bad uh, tickles their irony bone, you know, Mm. which happens to me occasionally. It's not it's not never happened, but it's not my primary source of enjoyment. So is it possible that this movie could tickle someone's irony bone because it's just stupid how stupid it is. That's possible. <laughs> that, that is possible. Like, I'm just saying it's, it's not impossible that there could be an audience for this movie who goes, what the fuck is happening? Like th- there's, there is a sort of amusement in that. And that I don't think is either one of our primary sources of enjoyment, or at least, sure. at least if something is going to go that direction for me, it has to be boss to the wall crazy. And instead this movie's mostly lazy, but I don't know. There might be someone listening who thinks like, "Oh, that's cool. That might be fun to watch, or whatever." But you know, it. A lot of the Eurocrime we've covered have has had tension. It's had big action scenes. It's had um, style. Like, there's not even any like cool '70s swag in this fucking thing. No. It's just. <laughs> I mean, except for that John John Travolta picture. <laughs> yeah, it's just. It is disappointing in a lot of different directions. And so even those of our listeners who are listening to a Eurocrime podcast, but might also be interested in a podcast covering some of the grimier sides of cinema, I don't even know that I'd recommend it to you, man. It's mostly a sleeper, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. mostly a snooze. And now granted, if it I'm not trying to say that if it had gone more offensive, I'd like it more. But I uh, but I just think like It'd be a hell of a lot more interesting. <laughs> well, I went in prepped to be bummed, and I was bummed, but not for the reason I thought I'd be bummed. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's it's un- for the kind of person who is listening to this. It's not so unpleasant that you'll be like, "Wow, they're really going somewhere with this." It really feels middle of the road in every possible way. Like you, it really feels just like it was where everyone involved didn't really give that much of a shit about whether they were making a good movie or not, and. uh yeah, I will say reading that thing that you put included in the outline, knowing that uh, D'Alessandro was uh, so high on smack the whole time, uh, mm-hmm. he's certainly more coherent than I would expect. Well, it helps that he doesn't have to speak the lines. That's true, but but you know what I mean. Like I, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I don't. I wouldn't have known. I don't think I would have known. I would, I would have no idea. Yeah, one hundred percent. Well, Liam, I don't think this one scratched your Eurocrime itch, but maybe. The next film we're going to cover on Wild in the Streets will do the job. Which is, Yo, this poster is sick as hell. Yeah, it's sick as hell. It's 1974's Emergency Squad, directed by Stelvio Masi, starring Thomas Millian, who we've already seen several times on this podcast, as well as Gaston Moskin and Stefania Cassini. Cop is consumed with the desire to get revenge on the crook who shot his wife to death during a robbery. Sounds like we're getting a little closer to that Death Wish-esque vain especially if it's 1974 feels like it would be the right time for such a thing uh liam on the next episode of wild and streets 1974's emergency squad are you excited about that i i really am i i might end up uh finding the exact thing i'm afraid of which is something i love and hate at the same time but if that <laughs> that if that's what it's going to be so be it uh this is a slightly different topic but have you uh heard anything about Quint Tarantino's latest book that he's released. No, I, I kind of stopped paying attention to Tarantino stuff. Like, I uh, he just kind of bums me out a little bit. Sure. No, I understand that entirely. I don't listen to his podcast. Um, Why well, didn't uh, you know I do he I... had a podcast? Yeah, he has a podcast with uh, Roger Avery. I bet he just um, talks and talks and talks. Jesus It's Christ. funny. It's What I said is I find him exhausting to listen to 
But I do have to say his book, Cinema Speculation, is a very entertaining read. It really is. And there's a whole segment, like a whole section on Death Wish in it. And he's not arguing that it's not fascist, but he, he basically... He talks to the craft of it a little bit. He really does go very in-depth in terms of his theories and all the movies that he talks about and what makes them work or not work. And and I have to say, it does make for a very quick and easy and interesting read. But the other thing about it is you can't help but read it in his voice, right? When you're fucking reading Yeah, totally. And that is, I can only read it in little bits at a time because it's like I'm getting too much of him in my head when I'm reading the book. But I do have to say, it's a worthwhile book. And um, it, it's not that it quelled any of my reservations about Death Wish. Or actually, you know, it's funny. I, I've said Death Wish. I actually don't mean Death Wish, even though he does talk about Death Wish at length in it. Dirty Harry is the movie that he speaks of at right, length. Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, and, and, Dirty, Harry, Dirty Harry is like, this is the thing with the, the Dirty Harry films, right? Was it, wait, was the first one called Dirty Harry? or was it Yeah, the first one's else? just Dirty Harry. Okay. Um, but I feel this similarly about... Death Wish and Dirty Harry, right? Which is that both of these movies, um, the first one is probably going a direction I don't like, but it has elements to it that I also think are well done. But then the sequels then have diminishing returns. And I think that with the Dirty Harry films, at least in my experience, it's like really like, oh, what the fuck are we doing? You know what I mean? But with Dirty Harry also, it's like, explicitly copaganda you know what i mean like in a city where things were pretty rough you know like maybe you that's know it's not... funny i think you'd find the humor in this i've never seen the first dirty harry sequel i think i've only ever seen the deadpool actually in terms of the sequels um and the first one i think is sudden death is it called sudden death yeah, I, I think remember. that's right something like that um and it you know tarantino's like because everyone said that dirty harry was a fascist movie they immediately made a movie, or when they made the sequel a few years later, they made it so that the cops were explicitly evil and the bad guys in it as like a response. Like they try to push it in the other direction. And that's actually why the sequel is bad as opposed to <laughs> leaning into it like they did in the original. I mean, it's it's more nuanced in how he writes it. And it's hard to even say Tarantino and nuanced in the same section, but in the same sentence. It's it, it, it's interesting all the same. Um and I maybe I do need to give Dirty Harry another watch now that I think about it. I mean, I'll do it if you want me to. <laughs> I'm not forcing you to do anything except one thing, Liam. You know what I want you to do? What? Get rest. Get better. Oh, feel I do better, appreciate that. I appreciate recover. But before you do that, you got to tell people where can people find other episodes of Wild in the Streets or our other podcast, Liam. Well, of course, they can find the latest episode of the show always at CinePunks.com or, you know, wherever they stream uh, podcasts, uh, various podcatchers. Uh, but also at CinePunks.com, there's a whole family of podcasts, you know, Twitch of the Death Nerve, uh, Shameless Picture Show, CinePunks, of course, the flagship podcast, uh, Tomb of Ideas, Fat Girl Hacks, a bunch of shows that were on hiatus during the pandemic are starting to come back. Um mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're excited that the activity is picking up. Um, uh, and, of course, over at CinePunks.com, we also have some CinePunk shirts they could check out. We're hoping to get more shirts up of other shows. So uh, please be patient. There's some design ideas we're talking through right now. So we're, we're hoping to move on that sooner rather than later. Uh, and, you know, CinePunks, you can also follow whatever's going on there on the various uh, social media platforms, uh, twi- uh, Twitter, Sorry, my brain just died. Okay. It's okay. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's all C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Remember, you, X. That's right. You can also follow Cinema Smorgasbord on Twitter at Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G, for as long as that platform exists. As Leah mentioned, all of our archives are over at cinemasmorgasbord.com, including our other podcasts, including ones devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Paul Bartel, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Carol Kane, Steve Buscemi, uh, more and more all the time over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can also find Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And you can find me as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. We are uh, hedging our bets regarding where 
where we might go if Twitter shuts down for good. But uh, for now, that's where you can find us always. Uh, Liam, I don't think you mentioned the Discord as well, the Cinepunks Discord. Oh, thank you. Yes, we have a Discord. Okay. Uh, if you search our social media, we haven't posted the link directly because we're trying not to have just random uh, bots sort of get in there and start spamming it. If you would like to be uh, given the the link to the Discord, you can hit up any of our social media. You can also email cinepunks at gmail.com or... What is the Cinemascores word? Email? Oh, it's, I think it's info. It's, it, you can find the link for the email on the uh, on, the, on website. the website. So, yeah, hit us up. You can even hit us, our personal Twitters. That's fine. Whatever it is, yeah. contact someone. We'll get you the link. I apologize. It's not just you could just find it and click it. But I really I really don't want um, – and I don't think that happens a lot, but we're just being careful, you know. Yeah. Look, the fact is if you're listening to this, you're probably cool enough to be there so uh why don't you drop us a line but if you're not cool enough and you get banned from it because you're being a fucking knob then uh then i hope you still will keep listening to the show (laughs) don't play me (laughs) (laughs) but i love it i love the discord it's funny we were so hesitant in regards to it but it's it actually has been a overall huge win i think for cinepunks and you know it's just a great place to have a conversation with like-minded fans of film yeah, it's, it's it's not – for those people for whom you're worried that it's going to be yet another thing that takes up too much of your time, it's not like so active that I, I waste like hours of my day no. on there. But it is a fun place to have conversations, to share stuff. Uh, so we would love if you get on there and uh, you know let us know who you are and uh, check out some of the things we're talking about in there. Well, you should do that. And you could even talk about your thoughts on this episode of Wild in the Streets or any of the other Yeah, podcasts let us know why Madness is actually your favorite year. <laughs> but for now, Liam, I think we need to say good night to our listeners out there. We're going to be back very soon with 1974's Emergency Squad. Good night, everyone. Night, night. <laughs> Plastic windows, clay on the corners, I just walked in Welcome to the house